Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Yes, the March issue of Commentary is closed, and I am commending to your attention our cover story now or pretty soon to be available on the commentary.org website, uh, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling by Robert Pondisio, a really remarkable piece about, uh, let us call it the moral and spiritual addiction in American public schooling to accounts of the United States as being bad uh, and, uh, and, and the kind of learned helplessness that is being encouraged in our children when it comes to political change and the nature of the American political experiment, it's really a remarkable piece. And I, I think it dovetails a tiny bit with the most astonishing piece of journalism that any of us has read in a long time, which was a piece in the Sunday New York Times about therapists who are seeing an increase, dramatic increase in their practices in people coming to them because their lives are being destroyed by their anxiety about climate change. Apparently, this is now a sub-therapy in, in American therapy where people sort of um, specialize in dealing with people who wander around their houses and they look at a piece of plastic and they go, oh my God, that's going to raise the temperature of the planet 11 degrees. What about my children? How are my children going to survive? The piece intentionally or not was a masterpiece of a black comedy, I would say, um, because basically what it showed is that there are people suffering from, let's say, obsessive compulsive disorder, unwanted thoughts, intrusive, unwanted, repetitive thoughts. Um, and there is now an entire branch of the world of psychotherapeutic practice uh, that is um, designed to make those thoughts worse. You go to the therapist in order to have your uh, your irrational, obsessive, consuming concerns validated and deepened. And there's a woman in the course of the piece, there was a woman who said something like, I don't know, I think about my children, like what if the water levels rot, like my children are going to drown or something like that. And he, and he said, you know, even when the disaster comes, even when the water rises, your children will have good days. Your children will have good days. That is his effort to calm her down. So, um, I, I tie that to uh, to uh, Robert Pondisio's piece because uh, this is a condition we have talked about intermittently on the podcast since we started the podcast, which is the the overall world perspective of American progressivism has has taken a turn, unlike all progressivism in the history of progressivism, toward. Uh, apocalyptic pessimism. The whole point of progressivism is the idea that things are inevitably going to get better, and that pro progressivism is a way of leading people into a into a better future, uh, whether they want to or not. That's part of the progressive 
impetus is we have such great ideas about how to fix everything that even if you want to be stuck in your hidebound traditionalism, we are going to wrench you into the great future that you need, right? And that's now so interesting because meliorism is still very much a feature of the, of the progressive left, but it is tempered with this hopeless pessimism that you, you're right, is should be incompatible. And yet the two things do coexist within the same coalition. Elaborate what you mean by meliorism. Meliorism is the, the belief that the human experience can be made better, if not perfected, through human effort, through labor. That's the fundamental premise of progressivism since there's been progressivism. And it's still very much a feature of the movement. But yeah, like you're saying, it's tempered by this apocalyptic pessimism uh, that things will never get better. In fact, they're getting inexorably worse. And yet these two things do coexist within the same movement. Because they're, they're both um, means to the same end, which is not either uh, ameliorating problems or um, sort of uh, dealing with the apocalypse. The meliorism is about burning uh, those who are against the reforms that progressives want. And the, the apocalyptic thought is about um, demonizing uh, non-progressives, right? So it's, it's, it's all about, uh, we're gonna, we have these policies that'll make you better, but you'll probably never see them because there are these awful conservatives over there <laughs> and the world is ending because right. there are these awful greedy capitalists over there. So, that, well, so, that, that, so they both enough. serve the same purpose. But there's also a, the, perhaps part of the, 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 the dystopian tone that it's taken on recently is because the only solution has to be state power, right? It has to be it has to be the government under progressive aegis doing all these good things for people. And when it can't, we see um, kind of this this uh, the tone of why work at all? You know, there's been this whole thing about like we should have universal basic income. Why work at all? It's just what's the point? You're just a cog in the capitalist wheel that actually goes against human nature, which actually does like to solve problems, fix things, do something, have purpose and meaning. So they are kind of playing into that by saying it. And you can see this even with the return, trying to get back to normal with from from post COVID. Like there, there's a sense of like there will never be normal again. I mean, it's very dark. Well, not only will there never be normal again, but normal is bad anyway. So what would you want to go back to normal for? It's sort of like the, you know, if we're going to build, rebuild the World Trade Centers after after the buildings are collapsed, you know, wh why would we want to, you know, there was a there was a proposal, which I think if you think back to where we were, the idea was we're going to build them exactly the way they were before. And the idea was, no, we're not going to do that because that would be you know, let's, let's, let's fix it. Let's, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll build on it and make something better, you know? <laughs> and the idea is, no, that's, we're not trying to make anything better. The, this was a, you know, we want, we want things exactly the same. That's the point to show them that they can't destroy our buildings and get away with it, whatever. But I, I, I'm, I'm struck as we have this conversation by uh, two contradictory things about American conservatism, neoconservatism and liberalism, which is um, everybody, including the integralists and the reactionaries in America is a liberal, by which I mean, everybody believes in social change for the purpose of uh, gradual or or radical betterment of the of the of of the citizenry. So the new common good conservatives they want to harness the power of the state to improve people whose moral you know uh, universe has shrunk or has become bad. They it's not that they think that people can't get better. They think people can't get better. Um, all 
conservatives, neoconservatives, economic conservatives think, you know, do discard regulations, discard sort of like speech code, whatever you want to say. And like in, in the end, what will happen is things will get better. Things will improve. People are being, you know, held back. And then so in that sense, when, you know, uh, uh, Lionel Trilling said in 1950 that there was no real American conservatism. This is kind of what he was referring to, though he was just sort of insulting conservative thought, really. But it is that we're all, we all live in an atmosphere in which we sort of are, are drenched in the idea of the American experiment and that you, and that society can permanently improve or like be improved the way a house can be improved. The way, you know, if you have to fix the roof, then you put on a new roof, maybe it'll be better. There'll be new techniques There'll be new materials, stuff like that. If you do it 20 years later, it'll be a better room. Uh, who cares? I mean, that like these analogies are stupid. I'm sorry. But the deepest conservative idea is that human nature, human nature is not changeable or improvable. Are we greater than Aristotle? Are we better than Homer? Are we, you know, more... Are we wiser than Thucydides or Moses or Confucius or whatever? No, we're not. And, and so human nature remains what human nature is. You can have a religious frame for it in which you say we're all fallen. You can have a, you know, just a general frame for it in which you say like we are, we're driven by, you know, evolutionary hungers and desires that limit our, that limit our capacity to be good or whatever, but that society can change. Human beings don't change. And that is where progressives are different from conservatives because progressives think that human beings can be made to change. Human beings can be improved with the application of the right coercive <laughs> principles. And the Pondicio piece, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling says, is a portrait of a world in which all that progressive energy still exists, but in which the idea is it's hopeless. We can change you. We're going to try to change you. But what's the point? Because everything is terrible. And nothing will ever get any better. And in fact, things will only get worse. And it's a very interesting thing, because of course, what, what is education? Education is supposed to prepare people to take their place in the society of the future. And the place that's being prepared for them is a place in which they are being led to believe that the future is going to be worse than the past, and that they're ability to make their mark on the world or to live in a place where they can thrive and survive and 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 profit and do good things is um very compromised so it's a great piece go read it <laughs> unbearable bleakness of american schooling by robert pendicio um okay uh let me talk to you about the x chair because if you're going to like if you're going to live in a bleak dystopian universe you might as well sit comfortably in your x chair in your office while you're doing work because when you sit down in the x chair you say oh this is the way it is supposed to be and you can have a moment of pleasure amid the horrible gloom you probably have never looked forward to sitting in your office chair but 
you know what? Now you will if you get an X chair. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's only LMAX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love your X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's xchaircommentary.com. Um, so there's this ridiculous picture. Uh, it's everywhere. It's hilarious. It's uh, Emmanuel Macron and Putin having a summit meeting at which they are sitting 48,000 feet from each other at a, at a table. And it, it, it conjures up nothing so much as the famous shot in Citizen Kane where uh, Charles Foster Kane and his wife are sitting at the breakfast table together and they're like 50 feet apart at the table. And this is, of course, the image of their marriage falling apart as he's starting to have his ruinous affair with um with the Chantou's susan alexander so uh they're sitting at this table like this and it's ridiculous and it's more signs of sort of ways in which macron seems ridiculous uh, putin doesn't necessarily seem ridiculous in the picture but it's covering something good i think and that we should probably make note of which is that um joe biden met with the german uh, you know, Chancellor, whose name once again I can't remember because I'm too old. And Olaf Scholz. Olaf. See, I should remember that because his name is Olaf, and I just have to associate that with the snowman. Unless I'm wrong, the snowman. No from... making a face. Well, it okay. is, but I don't recall that meeting. He met with uh, Victor Orban. I'm sorry. What? Victor Who? Orban, Hungarian PM. Last Who met week? with Victor Orban? Putin. Biden. I'm talking oh, about Biden. Biden. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Sorry, I misheard yeah. you. Biden, yes, no. So Biden, sorry, Biden meets with Olaf, the snowman chancellor of, uh, of of Germany, and 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 something good comes out of it. They basically announce, they agree that the Nord Stream two pipeline is dead if Biden goes into goes into Ukraine. Uh, Biden, <laughs> Putin goes into Ukraine. Um, this is the first time Germany has actually pulled the trigger and, and and said we will we are going to suspend the pipeline. Um, uh, that's a good thing, right? Am I am I over like uh, the administration has been determined going in this direction? It's been saying that it wants to have a unified NATO response. This is really the only response. I mean, there is any other response we have that doesn't involve killing this golden goose for Putin or this strategic golden goose for Putin. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, would, the rubber meets okay. the road, right? So let's say that this actually... So what are we doing? Are we sanctioning the companies that work on the pipeline? Are we sanctioning the energy that transits the pipeline? Are we producing and exporting enough liquid natural gas to offset the offsets that we're expecting from sanctions on the pipeline? If we do end up sanctioning the pipeline, are they going to blow the thing up? What is the real approach to this in the event of that we that something catastrophic happens in Europe? I think we've agreed in a, on a principle, but certainly not on terms. Well, 
what they said is they're going to shut the pipeline down. That's what they said. They haven't said they're going to blow it up. They haven't, they haven't said how long they'll shut it down or for or whatever. And yeah, the, uh, these other questions, which are very interesting, and they go to American, they go to the American mania and hunger among uh, progressives and liberals to shut down America's energy independence and its ability to export natural gas around the world, which is being interfered with by psychotic leftist morons who think that it's, you know, who want to actually impede America's production of clean, of cleaner natural there gas. There are capacity reasons. issues. We're already basically at capacity. We can improve capacity. Right. But we don't have it today. Okay. But think about how fast we achieved capacity. We, we did not have this, um, fracked natural gas until 2007 and by 2014 we were you know we had created billion dollar uh, refineries and things on the gulf of mexico and pipelines and stuff in it, with speed that was head spinning could can we do it fast oh yeah we did it fast we did it we did it for the profit motive you know, so that we became a net exporter of natural gas in seven years or something like that. So you can't tell me that we can't build more refineries or, or improve capacity. We just have to we just have to loosen regulations. Um, look, I think it is good news if, if it can be done. Um, I, but I have to say it also it point the zigzag in the administration's uh, take on this points to another instance of um, of its obfuscation here, because. The administration was sort of saying not too long ago that the pipeline was basically a fait accompli and that this but you, you can't really you can't really uh, sanction the pipeline. And anyway, uh, having the pipeline gives us leverage somehow and uh, not Putin. Yeah, those are all ridiculous lies. I mean, during the campaign, exactly. Joe Biden made made it explicit that this was a bad deal for Europe, his quote, um, and a bad deal for the United States. And there had been no construction on this pipeline for the two preceding years ahead of January 2021, when construction spontaneously restarted in response to political circumstances in the West. So that's all horse crap. So where are we then? So we, we, we take this seriously and also, or we don't take it seriously? Yeah, briefly. I mean, Germany crying uncle is a very serious concern in the event of something catastrophic happening in Europe. We have to very pay very close attention to that and provide as many offsets as possible to make Germany comfortable with the course that the West wants to take here. But it's the least of our concerns in the event of a rough, full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, the, the immediate security concerns and the refugee crisis and the economic crisis that would follow would be the immediate problem. Well, you know, Russian natural gas, offsetting Russian natural gas is sort of a secondary, if not tertiary concern. The point here is that if we are, if Putin has not yet decided to pull the trigger and he may have already decided and he's waiting until after the Olympics, um, which itself is risibly preposterous if that's actually the truth. Um, but if, but if, but if he is still not quite there yet and we are ratcheting up the pressure and we are making it clear that there is going to be a price that he is going to pay and you know, we move on to the very real possibility, which has been floated, but has not yet been put, has not yet been sort of like really emphasized that the entire Russian banking system could be closed off from international transactions. That's the SWIFT system, which is the only way 
on earth that banking transactions are done, it would not only cut off all Russian transactions with the West, but it would effectively cut off all Russian oligarchical Putin-esque access to his dollars and his money and his bank accounts everywhere. And that has that was something that was mentioned about a month ago, was part of an early threat. Um, it is probably more serious and more severe a sanction than, than the Nord Stream pipeline is, in fact, because you could literally immiserate the country in a week if it doesn't have access to simply to be able to pay bills through the, you know, through the SWIFT system. And I, I mean, if they're tightening the noose and tightening the noose and tightening, that's what we need to see. Or is there going to be more noose tightening? So no, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week that indicated that and they're, who knows what's real because they're negotiating with themselves in public that the Biden administration had taken this, the removal of Russia from the SWIFT system off the table. I haven't seen that elsewhere. It was in the Wall Street Journal a week ago. Yeah. So maybe this is just another float. So they float things and then they fall back to earth. There was this poor report in New York Times, New York Times, not NBC News, while I was away that the administration would be coordinating with Moscow on troop deployments. That seems like it was, I don't know where that came from, but never heard from it again. So there's somehow these things are just sort of being floated by members of the administration or executive agencies. You don't know where they come from and they might not mean anything at all. But nevertheless, the administration's resolve to remove Russia from the SWIFT banking system, as well as sanctions on Putin's inner regime, a whole bunch of other, we don't really know what they're committed to yet. And maybe that's intentional. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that Nord Stream alone is not sufficient if this is the first step to a relentless, before he goes in, a relentless series of promised threats that life is going to get very, 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 very difficult for him and for Russia if he goes ahead, um, <clears throat> you know, that, w- that will be a sign that, that, that the Biden administration is taking a mature, rigorous, and, you know, very systematic approach to trying to nip this in the bud and make sure that it doesn't happen uh, before, you know, before that line is crossed and you know and all hell breaks loose and i just think you know we have reason today to think that i mean they had a good day yesterday is what i'm saying and it's worth saying they had a good day yesterday and we don't know what's going on behind the scenes and it would be an enormous step to do that with the swift system it would be an enormous step it would be a kind of you know it's like making something thinkable that was previously unthinkable that would be very scary because of course if you can cut one nation off from it you know, it suddenly that system, which was unconditional, suddenly becomes mildly conditional. And, you know, I'm sure there are many voices inside the administration and elsewhere who are saying, you cannot do this. You are, you know, you are making it clear that we can, we have an on-off switch for the, for the world economy. And we should not have that switch in our, you know, that switch should not be in our part of our toolkit, but what are you going to do if you have a relentless, you know, antinomian actor who is trying to destroy <laughs> destroy the West's alliance? <clears throat> what you know? What do you have at your disposal? Um, and this just, is this is the this is like the big bomb. This is the new. This is the you know atomic bomb 
1945 uh, in this uh, procedure. But I just want to make a note of concern regarding the, the Macron meeting with Putin. Um, something he said, Macron said going into the meeting was that the Finlandization of Ukraine is on the table. Um, and they emerged, he and Putin emerged from this five-hour meeting uh, with Putin saying something like, there were some interesting proposals, you know, that were discussed uh, too soon to finalize anything, uh, you know, and then uh, Macron is, uh, last I read, headed to uh, Kiev to to talk talk uh, possibilities over there. Um, I'm concerned about this this Finlandization idea um, because it would essentially grant Putin uh, sort of an invasion without bloodshed. We should we should probably d define Finlandization. It's an important. It was an important Cold War term um, that has gone almost entirely out of um, out of existence uh, because the Cold War <laughs> stopped. But uh, Finland, basically, uh, in an effort to keep the Soviet Union at bay. Um, uh, outsourced its foreign policy to the Soviet Union, I think is the best way to put it. In other words, that it, it would no longer would not have a foreign policy separate from the interests of the Soviet Union and a way of keeping the Soviet Union from, you know, doing bad things to it since it's right there, you know, on its border. And Finlandization then became uh, a pejorative term to describe the kowtowing behavior of kind of people like Willy Brandt, uh, the chancellor of Germany and stuff like that, who, who basically wanted to say, we have no truck, we have no problem with the Soviet Union and we're not going to challenge them and we're not going to tell them what to do. And we're not going to, you know, we're just going to sue for peace and all of that. So the Finlandization of Ukraine would be Ukraine no longer has an independent foreign policy. It has the foreign policy that Russia wants for it. And it will be there, its borders and its, 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 its position and its, you know, where it will be left alone as long as it doesn't open a mouth about anything or oppose in any way, shape or form the behavior of, of Moscow. Yeah, it's, it's not on the table because Ukrainians wouldn't accept it. It is appeasement, um, which we know has a pretty bad historical track record. It's presupposes. beyond appeasement. I mean, it's beyond appeasement. It's this bizarre thing where you basically allow another country to set the policy of your your country. I mean, on top of a couple of land grabs, it's appeasement. It's yeah. Munich. Um, it, it presupposes you can roll back everything the West has done since 2014 to introduce arms and train personnel and create economic ties with the European Union and Kiev. And it, it, it it's a central desire of the Kremlin to resurrect the conditions that prevailed in the Cold War and the notion here that you would reintroduce Finlandization to this country that is not the former Soviet Union, that doesn't have the influence, economic, military, or political in its own neighborhood to affect the changes it wants, that it can muscle its way into it by just making you making Western Europe afraid, would represent a profound victory on the part of the of uh, uh, the the Kremlin. This is there's there's no conditions that should precipitate Finlandization anymore. Even Finland isn't Finlandized. 
Finland is is very Western oriented. Everything everything in, in Europe is Western oriented, and the Kremlin hates it. And they can't secure it by force or influence or will or culture. They have to be gifted it. That's the whole the whole enterprise here is to demand that the West gift them a sphere of influence they cannot otherwise secure on their own. Yeah, well put. And you know what else is well put? What else is well put is you got to secure your internet security. If you need to secure your security from Putin, you also need to secure your internet security from prying eyes who are, you know, like you're going onto an unencrypted network somewhere. So you can use the Wi-Fi, right? A cafe, a hotel, airport, whatever. When you do that, the device you're using, your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial details, you name it. ExpressVPN, my friends, it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers can't steal your data. Hackers can make some serious cash selling personal information on the dark web, but ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're instantly protected. And ExpressVPN works on all your devices like laptops, phones, tablets, so you can stay secure on the go. So secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary. Uh, Christine, what's with all of these states announcing the, that uh, the COVID restrictions are being lifted? They're finally listening to the Commentary Magazine podcast. I'm so glad we have so many governors on our team. Um, no, I mean, I think uh, there's been a lot of internal Democratic polling in the last few weeks, and we suddenly see the uh, the 180 that's been taken with regard to masking. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. I share Noah's concern that almost all of these Democratic governors who are announcing these lifting of restrictions are keeping the option open to allow children to remain masked in schools because they're giving, they're saying, well, if individual school districts want to keep having a mandate, that's fine. That will not fly parents, even in blue states. And I speak as someone who's in close contact with lots of parents here in DC public schools, even the most hardcore maskers are done. Like they're, they're just, they're, they're pretty much finished with all of this, uh, especially given the evidence we have that the cloth masks that most children wore weren't effective, where we've always been an international outlier with masking young children. Um, people are just done. And, and case rates, thankfully, are, are going down. The surge is, is ending. So we will see. I think Virginia is actually the future for a lot of these places because the ongoing lawsuits back and forth between the people who want mask mandates and those who are fighting them will continue. Um, we're not out of the woods yet. We do not have, I think it's going to be a lot of churn in the next few months, but the, but po from a political standpoint, Democrats are finally waking up to the cost of the overreach with the pandemic measures, which is a, it's a good thing for the country. We'll see what, it, how it plays out politically, but I would guess within a few months, we're going to see what we saw when crime spiked after the defund the police movement became toxic and suddenly Democrats were saying, well, we actually didn't want to defund the police. It was the Republicans. I, I would predict that a few months from now, we're going to hear Democrats saying, you know, it's really Republicans who, who want these sorts of mandates. I mean, look at Youngkin. He's trying to, <laughs> they're, they're going to gaslight the American people in some of these places. It's not going to work. Um, 
Yeah, well, they are already. I I would also point out that this is true, not just of Democratic governors, but a lot of the uh, elevated public health experts we've seen all over the media for the last two years have changed on a turned on a dime. The same people who told us, you know, you you should not be able to gather with your family for Thanksgiving, but by all means, go to a Black Lives Matter protest without a mask. I mean, Leanna Wen being the most egregious example of just a few weeks ago, she was saying you can't trust people to be honest about being vaccinated. So we all have to remain masked. And now she's like, oh, we should ease the restrictions. So again, is the a long-going theme of this podcast, the mistrust of public health experts exists for a concrete reason. <laughs> We're so seeing it play out. When's the worst example of this? Because she said the science has changed around right. this, but the science hasn't changed. The politics that's have. a capital, Is the it? science. Right. Capital T, capital S. Right. Otherwise known as Dr. Fauci to you. The to their credit, the governors of Connecticut, Delaware, and New Jersey who yesterday announced the end of masking mandates in schools, and the governor of California who announced an end to indoor masking mandates generally, not schools and not for people who are unvaccinated. Um, they didn't they didn't inject the science into it when they were talking about it. They were saying, oh, case rates are down. The trajectory is good. Hospitals are stabilized. You know, now it's time to, to make this move because it's conditions based. Um, that shouldn't be satisfying to anybody because the conditions really haven't changed. Yes, Omicron is fading, but we've known since Omicron was Omicron that it wasn't going to present this kind of a threat to hospitals and certainly not to vaccinated people. And the case rates are still pretty high and the numbers of deaths are still pretty high in places like New Jersey where, you know, we just, I live and where they had this announcement yesterday, there are more deaths recorded now than there were uh, a year ago when we actually started having saturation of vaccines and there were no, and masking mandates were not in place at the time. They reintroduced those later on in, in last year. So it's not conditions based in the sense that the conditions are the, the, premise on which this is this is based on the health conditions i should say the the conditions that have justified this are politics and they should say it not we're being naked political animals but a prudential judgment-fueled understanding of this situation that we've been in in two years leads us to believe that this is the proper course of action um from a managerial standpoint from an executive standpoint don't invoke you know, somehow the conditions that the virus has made this this possible because they haven't. The virus wasn't a factor here. Politics is. I want to and talk pretending, about. Okay, go ahead. I just want to say, Sorry. pretending that 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 the science has changed, um, further erodes the credibility of the whole public health regime. You know, as which is something they've done every step of the way. Okay, I want to talk about misinformation. We've been we've now had two weeks of this conversation about misinformation or week or whatever about Joe Rogan and peddling misinformation, having these people on this podcast to talk about, you know, the inefficacy of certain types of uh, vaccination regimes or whatever, or uh, mitigation strategies and all of that, and these terrible uh, acts of misinformation, then misinformation is a bad thing. And misinformation should always be challenged by better information, and all of that. What about the misinformation on the COVID hawk side? And here's what I mean. Kids don't die of COVID and kids don't get sick of COVID. Okay. There are tens of millions of people in this country who do not know this fact. And people are telling them, Eric Feigelding, my favorite name of all of Twitter, who is a sort of COVID shyster hawk lunatic, peddles misinformation about the threat the children pose to each other and to adults. That is misinformation. He should be banned from social media. 
Randy Weingarten should be banned from social. She is peddling misinformation. This is misinformation. I believe, I haven't looked at the numbers. I believe that with 900,000 people dead in the United States from COVID or in a, a affiliated relation to COVID, the number of Americans between the ages of zero and 18 who have died from COVID remains somewhere around 800 in two years. They are not a danger to each other. They are not a danger to anybody else. And there are tens of millions of people who are holding, who are being used as kind of a base to hold them hostage for reasons that remain elusive to me. I mean, I, I grant you, I look, I grant you, I grant you that, you know, there, there, there's politics here and, you know, this is how they, you know, keep us in, under control and all of this. But the longer this goes on, the weirder this is. And the longer this goes on, the weirder it is that Rochelle Walensky and people like that are still insisting on this. And I think the reason is that they, what they are scared of is not anything that they can actually, um, they can actually uh, articulate because it will sound crazy, even though it's not crazy, but it'll sound crazy, which is we have to do this because it is possible that as we are sitting here in a room inside the bodies of a two-year-old in Tampa, Florida, is a variant that is going to kill the planet. And therefore, we got to put a mask on that four-year-old, five-year-old, whatever, because we don't know that it's happening. But it might be. It might not, it might not be happening, and there's no evidence, but it might be. And if you say it like that, if you say we have to do this because... We have no evidence that this is happening, but it's a possibility and it's better to be safe. It's the 1% threat or the 0.1% threat. And therefore, 75 million people under the age of 18 need to remain in masks. They can't say it. That, I believe, is what the public health world, when they, if they are honest with each other behind closed doors and stuff, is actually worried about. But the people who believe that kids need to stay in masks are themselves victims of a gigantic misinformation campaign, and nobody is talking about that. But it's two, it's two things, though. I would say it's there's a sunk cost. I think you're right about the public health experts, and I do think their fear is some sort of new variant that will come along, and then you know no one will listen to us because you know, and, and we'll, we'll never be able to reimpose these mandates. But for the people who just kind of follow these with uncritically and say, we listen to the capital T, capital S, the science, and and, and whatever Fauci says is gospel, there's a sunk cost fallacy now that's playing out, which is that even if they're sick of masks, they've been doing this for two years and they have to justify that rationally to themselves, to their families, looking at their kids suffering with these masks. So there's that too. I also think it's really important in this discussion to, to make a distinction between misinformation, which is spreading stuff that that's not true, and but not doing it deliberately. Like people sharing stuff on Twitter, look, the study says masking will keep us safe forever. And they pass it along to all their friends. That's spreading misinformation. But what Randy Weingarten and some of these public health experts are doing is active disinformation. They know this information is challenged and questionable, and they are deliberately sowing it for political purposes, in the case of Weingarten, to, to benefit her you know, power as a teacher's union's advocate. So I, I do think it's important, particularly when government officials are spreading this stuff or, or insinuating that the risk is higher than it is, that's disinformation. If they know that to be untrue or even questionable or, or controversial or challenged, then they're doing that on purpose versus people just sharing stuff that they come across that that reflects their prior convictions. 
So is this the Jaws mayor situation? This is what I mean. Randy Weingarten, you're saying, is a you know peddling active disinformation. She knows better. She's doing it for her political, her own natural purposes. Why? Why at this point? What is what is she, what is she getting out of it? I don't. Power. I don't. Actually, okay. Power. She can, can. She's you know. Okay. This is why I meant to mention the Jaws mayor, right? There's always the the problem in Jaws with the mayor. So the mayor is like, you can't close down the beaches. It's summer. You know, our businesses are going to be harmed. How dare you? you can't close down the, the beaches. It's the 4th of July. Right. Meanwhile, sharks are eating everybody, including his own children. He says just one point, shark, John, just one shark. Just but one. he says, you know, he says something like, you know, don't don't get high handed with me, he says to Roy Scheider, like my kids were on that beach, too. And yet he won't close that because. Because, you know, he's got this, uh, you know, overweening capitalist greed or something like that, that is obviously injurious to his own and his families and all this public health. Okay. Randy Weingarten, is, it is past the due date at which this is useful to her. I mean, that, that it's like the person yelling at Glenn Youngkin to read the room when he was in the supermarket in Alexandria, Virginia. Like, Randy Weingarten should read the room. The reason... That Gavin Newsom and um, and uh, Governor uh, Murphy and uh, uh, who else? The governor of Oregon and w- w- what are the other states? I can't even remember. Ned Lamont and Connecticut, Lamont and Connecticut are like saying we're out of this is because they are reading the room. That's what they do. They are elected politicians. They are scared spitless of what is going to and they, happen to they them should if be. they don't. I know they but should. They're, they're but still beholden to their bizarre myths. This is the lead. The lead sentence from The Take with Rick Klein, ABC News analyst, quote, the end of COVID, whatever that might mean, will not be determined by declarations of elected leaders or candidates for office. Yes, it will. It's happening right now, arbitrarily and without consideration for the virus's metrics. It is a purely political consideration, and it's happening all around you. How does a political analyst not know it? And remember, it should be. It should be. We live in a representative democracy. The efforts to mitigate the spread of COVID have been political efforts that have involved the restriction of American civil liberties. Politicians not only will get involved because it's their business, and but they should get involved because we don't live in some autocracy in which I'm sorry to put it this way. Anthony Fauci and Rochelle Walensky can sit around and make rules for everybody else. And for some bizarre reason, American liberals who used to be very nervous about the power vested in public officials to do this kind of thing have now become completely, I don't know what you would call them, like like suck-up courtier They're like courtiers in this court of I am science, you know, in the court of I am science. I am Anthony Fauci and I am science. And he isn't science because, by the way, and this is the final thing I'm going to say here, this isn't about science. Numbers, epidemiological numbers are not science. They are math. They are not science. Science is something else. And by the way, medicine is not science in this sense, which is that, and we're hearing this now, big story in Politico, right? Biden administration is looking into 
revising the COVID numbers, going back and doing a detailed study of the COVID numbers to try to figure out who died from COVID and who died with COVID, who came to hospitals because of COVID as a primary concern and who came to hospitals for other reasons and had COVID when they came in and then may have died from it. They're going to try to separate these strands. Kathy Hochul in New York State did this a month ago during the uh, during the uh, Omicron surge. And guess what they found out? They found out that of 5,400 cases or something like that of people going into emergency rooms uh, and, and being considered cases with COVID, half of them had come into the emergency room for reasons other than COVID. Half. Okay. So I'm not saying that when all said and done, they're going to say that 450,000 people died from COVID and, and 450,000 people died with COVID when all said and done. I, I'm sure that's not the case. But that's science. That's also science. And science isn't you have something called COVID, you're dying from it, you therefore slap a mask on and your, your children can't visit you and you'll die alone in a nursing home. That's not science. That is a triage, you know, approach that's not about science. But that you asked the question, what 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 good is it? Why would Weingarten and, and others of her ilk want to continue, you know, claiming that we need these restrictions when when the country is turning against it, the political mood is turning against it? And I think there is, to your point just now, there's a there is a legitimate reason. None of these, certainly none of these special interest groups like Weingarten, who was one of the most egregious actors throughout the COVID school lockdowns, um, but also this is true of the state and local leaders. Nobody wants an honest audit of the abuse of emergency power that this country has watched over the last two years. None of them want that. Cuomo didn't want it. I mean, there's going to be so much dissembling, outright lying. There's going to be a lot of effort to bury all of that time. And the problem is, like, as, as we've said often on the podcast, that'll come out politically down the line, perhaps. But right now you see efforts to actively avoid that, to actively just pretend like it didn't happen, whether it's rehabbing oneself in the pages of the New York Times, thanks to Michelle Goldberg's column, as Randy Weingarten did, or if it's just like not having those discussions at all. We're just going to move on. We're going to, we're just going to pretend this never happened, sweep it all under the rug, but people will remember. And a lot of these, a lot of these mayors and governors are continuing to, you know, in increments, extend their emergency powers here or there. We need a decisive conversation where the public says enough emergency over. And again, this goes to the top. This is why Biden needs to speak to this, not because he can make the rules in each state, but because he can signal to the leaders of each state that it's time to end this emergency use of power. Did you see the political playbook yesterday? I think it was, which has become a pretty funny place to read Beltway conventional wisdom. It was, you know, maybe Democrats can actually pull off a midterm upset and maybe not lose a chamber or two, or perhaps even gain seats. And the premise is, well, the jobs numbers came out. They were great. The economy is doing great. COVID's receding. Uh, you know, all these mitigation measures are, are going to meet the chopping block in response to whatever, you know, conditions based, who cares? Um, all these, you know, redistricting, all these, you know, gerrymandering coups by Democrats, which are suddenly amazing and good politics, very smart and definitely not disenfranchising voters. Um, they're gaining a couple of seats there. So maybe they can engineer themselves in upset and Americans will just forget the last two years. And in, in response to structural conditions that will be that are far more important. You know, this is this is you know, pundit you know, talk, really elevated pundit talk because they, they look past the day to day news cycle to the uh, the macro conditions that are that voters really respond to. And the notion here is that they'll all just move on, forget I, that I, this was done to them and is still being done to them. 
See, I think that notes like that are, or, 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 you know, floated ideas like that are valuable in this sense, because I think there are people who are thinking this and it's worth knowing that they're thinking this. And it's worth knowing that there is a temptation to believe that if we just turn a corner and things look good and we have good economic, we have good macroeconomic numbers uh, and, and we play political games that help mitigate the downside of our, of the threat to us and all of this, you know, we can pull ourselves through this by the skin of our teeth and move forward. And, you know, let me, let me just tell you, the sky isn't necessarily falling. So you can go off to the people that you need to raise money from and tell them that, you know, if they give you money, maybe we can save the house and the Senate. I think that is, that is, it's valuable to know that those ideas are being thought. And I think what's most important about this is that um, we are having this conversation again about COVID. We started this podcast daily almost two years ago talking about COVID. There have been maybe 15 days in the last two years podcasts. If that, I'm not even sure that that's in which the word COVID was not mentioned. If you have conversations with people and have had conversations with people in the last two years, almost no conversation that you have had with any human being on the planet Earth has not involved COVID. The idea that we are going to move on from COVID and that it is not going to have been a dominating factor in the politics of this decade is delusional. Yeah, well, we that's, don't know that's how. Long-term. That's much longer term, though. No, then- but I mean, short term, midterm, and long term. And it has the short term is. People are going to vote to punish people in November. Right. They punished people last November. They're going to punish people this November. It will be fresh. It will be, it's not like, oh, all right, everybody, you know, whatever, we're moving on. They are going to punish people. Well, the that polls is are, what have we talked about this? The polls show that Republicans' big concern is inflation. Right. And the polls show that Democrats' overwhelming concern is COVID. And I've talked about this, that I think it's attributable to the fact that COVID, the pandemic restrictions are increasingly an esoteric feature of life in dark blue cities and states. And it's not apparent anywhere in red America. It is a pandemic of Democrats. But my point is that those Democrats who are worried about it or not, whatever, our politics is going to is going to revolve around the aftermath, what happened here and the aftermath of it for at least three election cycles. And Democrats are not prepared for this fact. They were not prepared for what happened in November 2021, and they are not prepared for November 2022. And this is why I say that Randy Weingarten is not reading the room, because bad politics in this regard is going to come down on her like, you know, like a wall collapsing, because the villains of COVID, of the post-COVID, are going to be the teachers unions who kept kids hostage and the um, education establishment that kept kids hostage and the public health authorities that kept everybody hostage. They are not getting away with this scot-free. They are not. It is not going to happen. I'm not saying this as because I want it or I don't want it. Uh, I've made this analogy before. I'll make it again. In 2008, we had the financial meltdown and the election of 2008 happened six weeks after. And there was no reckoning for the financial meltdown in our politics. And then in 2010, Obamacare had passed. Obamacare was the subject of the 2010 election, and there was no reckoning for the financial meltdown. And then in 2012, 
Republicans nominated the single worst person to represent a populist assault on the financial meltdown. That was a, you know, hedge fund, you know, multi-zillionaire in Mitt Romney. Um, and so he couldn't really prosecute the case uh, against Obama's handling of the financial meltdown or represent American views that terrible things had happened in the 2000s with, uh, with, in real estate. And so there was no reckoning in 2012 for the financial meltdown. That was three elections without a reckoning. And then 2014, whatever happened. And then 2016, the entire political system blew up. It was eight years of repressed, nothing happening. And then Donald Trump became president. And uh, there's a lot more. Uh, there's and that fact and various other things mean there are going to be anti-COVID candidates. There are going to be punish the COVID hawk candidates all over the country. And we're going to see how they do. And 2024 is going to be about where were you on this? How did you handle this? Just like 2008, not to be too too uh, fine a point on it, Barack Obama got the Democratic nomination over Hillary Clinton because he gave a stupid speech in 2002 saying he was against Iraq. But the 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 pent up energy may have been about the financial meltdown, but Trump's support uh, was not articulated in terms of it. Right. That's exactly my point. Right. It's. It, it was about the financial meltdown, but it wasn't about the financial meltdown because it was about the realities and conditions of the United States in the wake of the financial meltdown and the fact that the establishment in the United States had done nothing to salve or fix or repair or make anything better for the people who suffered uniquely from the financial meltdown. And everybody who has a kid who has had to go, you know, into therapy and everybody who has had a kid who's educational. And again, remember, I know most people aren't parents of, you know, people of, of kids, but um, there is this parents movement that has started. It is going, it is a gigantic political fact that we have only just begun. Like we're like it, we're like at 2% of capacity of this parents movement. It is not going anywhere. It is not going anywhere and it will have longer tendrils and the liberal response to it which is oh you're just a bunch of racist oh you just want to suppress mouse oh you just want to you know you just want to threaten people at at school board meetings all of that's going to make them feel better and create all these new stories and they're still going to get wiped out by the parents movement because they will not understand what the real cause of it is which is you people did damage to my children and i'm coming after your jugular I'm not coming after it physically. I don't care. I'm going to make sure that people like you do not govern this country any longer. And that is, you know, a, a motion like that uh, with real cause, it's going to be very hard to resist. I don't know how it's, again, Abe's right. These things manifest themselves in corkscrew ways. That's why you can't assume that we're, you know, there could be an issue in 2024 that involves you know, uh, highway regulations. I don't, who knows? It doesn't even matter. Wait, can I, 
because yeah. you said highway, can I bring up trucker, the, tr oh, please, the trucker please. convoys? Because yes. I think there's another aspect of this for the Democratic Party in particular that's going to prove to have a long tail for them electorally. And that's the absolute uh, breakdown of, of class politics within the Democratic Party. And what you really do see is a real, you know, the the elite takeover of the Democratic Party by educated, largely white, uh, wealthy elites is going to be cemented and we will see it play out if this trucker convoy, which we, we have a we have news that truckers in California are going to have a convoy from California to, to D.C. here in the U.S., uh, mirroring the one that's ongoing in Canada. Uh, Canada is having a strange overreaction to a largely peaceful protest by uh, and, and I say that not as a CNN person uh, uh, covering BLM riots where buildings are burning behind me, but as someone who like there's been excessive honking. And this is very distressing to the people who live in the areas where excessive truck honking is going on. Um, this largely peaceful protest, which an elite institution, GoFundMe, which does all kinds of online fundraising for people, pulled their money. They basically stepped in and said, this is an occupation and it's illegal and we're going to take all their money, all the money that was raised for the convoy. They removed the oil that was and fuel for the for the truckers that was there. So you, this is all going to have to play out in an interesting way in terms of class. So if working class truckers are protesting uh, mandates and driving across the country showing it, how's the Democratic Party going to respond to that? This is an active protest against a, a way of being that the Democrats have embraced and Biden has totally doubled down on. How are they going to deal with that? These are people who would be traditionally Democratic voters. You know, when the last time trucking became a major issue in American, I, I get, well, mostly we were talking about Canadian politics. You know when it was? In the late 1970s. Go back and look. Interesting, populist, broken 15 different ways. Interstate trucking, re deregulation of interstate trucking. Uh, you know, um, speed limits uh dragging sally citizen, field across a border that's a man act <laughs> citizen band radio uh creating the first nationwide network of of avoidance of police you know cb radios existed it became a whole craze because it was how you found out that the cops were were lying in wait to give you a speeding ticket and that was used that it became a nationwide network uh, almost like prior to AM radio in which people and stayed up all night talking politics while they were driving trucks across the country. And popular culture embraced the truck driver as a kind of freedom. I remember BJ McKay and he had that, was it a monkey? That was the his bear. best friend bear. BJ right. and the bear. No, BJ and the bear was this you know, uh, sitcom. Like there were tons of cultural products that actually uh, focused on people who drove trucks for a living. Like I remember I grew up watching them. So, but that, do you see any of that in, in, Today's elite pop culture. None of no, it. it's None not of it. showing. But it, the point, the point here is, um, you know, Justin Trudeau like made a statement. It's like everyone's allowed to protest, but not like this. I mean, you can't just shut down our streets and like that. Oh, really? Well, let me. What did you say when the G20 shut down the streets? What did you say when you had racial protests? You hypocrite! You lousy, stinking hypocrite! And you think people can't see through it? They're just like, I don't like you. I don't like you and I don't like what you're doing. So I would like it if my, you know, if feet moron prime minister, you know, who inherited the looks of his mother and none of the brains of his father, if we, if you could just, um, you know, if you could just stop it because it's really upsetting to me that they're blocking the streets around Ottawa. It's like, good luck to you. Congratulations. Like that's a real way to deal with the question of why this is happening at all.
Why is this happening at all? How did it happen? How did it happen? There are 20,000 trucks and people in a convoy like this. How did this happen? Try to figure out why it happened before you say that there it has no justification. Well, and watch if it if it does, if it recurs here, if we have a version of it here, watch how big tech and the Biden administration deal with with the truckers and deal with their supporters. That's one thing I would say, because GoFundMe, how GoFundMe dealt with the convoy in Canada is is very telling. And it'll be interesting to see if, if similar approaches are adopted here. I'm going to say 10-4 good buddy to all of you. See you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, and Noam, John Podhoretz, keep the candle burning.